So we are continuing our series in the book of Revelation. Next week, we'll, we'll take a break for a, a few weeks, I think, but I'm really excited about today. So, so we're done with the letters. You know, we, we, we started out in Revelation chapter 1, where um, we were given a very vivid description of what Jesus looks like. The apostle John heard a voice behind him, and he turns around, and there's just this crazy description of what Jesus looks like, and I believe it's what he looks like that side of heaven. And so, so we're given that description in chapter 1. And then, then Jesus has John write down these letters to seven churches. So basically what Jesus had done was he had gone through these churches and he did an inspection report. And he says, John, I want you to, I want you to write down what I'm telling you and then we're going to deliver this to the pastors of those churches. And in every letter he had something to say. There was issues to address. Um, and then, but then there was, you know, here's what you need to do. And, and there was also a promise in every one of those letters. So those letters were written to churches that were, that were active at the time in the uh, Asia Minor area or the Mediterranean area or what we would know as the western edge of the country of Turkey. And so, but those letters, those churches, those inspection reports are things that churches to this very day deal with and also people deal with. So we can look at those and as a pastor I might say, whoa, this is, our church is heading in that direction or thank goodness, wow, our church was here and now we're doing better or, or whatever. Or maybe as a person you could say, oh, I was really caught up in some of that stuff but now I'm, I'm out or whatever. But we can use those to kind of evaluate where we are in life. And then at the end of each one of those letters was a promise. It was a promise to the people in that church, but it was also a promise to all the believers, everybody who is victorious, everybody who overcomes these things we've been talking about, here is your promise. So those letters transcend time. Churches all around the world through all of time. Now, in chapter 4, that we're going to look at today, we have a major shift in events. We are no longer looking at what's happening on earth, and we get a glimpse of heaven. We get a glimpse of what's going on in heaven. Kind of, kind of think of it like this, the Wizard of Oz, behind the curtain, behind the scenes. That's what we're going to look at today. Because Revelations chapter 4 and chapter 5 are a prelude or a precursor to the tribulation period. The tribulation period, Jesus also refers to it as the hour of testing or a time of testing. And it is a seven-year period uh, of time that God's judgment comes upon the earth. And this judgment is for people who are not God's people, people who have denied him, have rejected him, have turned him away. And so prior to... Uh, 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 prior to this, the church is removed from this hour of testing, from this judgment, and we're called up into heaven. And this is called the rapture. Now, we looked at this a few weeks ago. I have the verse up on the screen, but I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it tells us that Jesus himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, and that the trumpet call of God will be heard. And then we will be caught up in the clouds with Jesus forever to spend eternity with him. But we can see from the scriptures 
And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of uh, theories on when this tribulation period will happen. Well, I believe it's a or rapture. I believe it's a pre-tribulation rapture, meaning it will happen before the tribulation happens. And so that's how I'm going to teach it. And I will, I will share with you why I believe that. Because I believe that God spares his people from his righteous judgment. And so if we look at the book of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter actually gives us a little history lesson in God's judgment. And he says this in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He, which, by the way, you would probably be surprised at what the actual reason why God was unhappy with Sodom and Gomorrah but he was unhappy with this city. He turned the city into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you see... The Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. So that's something that Peter tells us. Now the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica this, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, he is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. And then he says again later on in chapter 5, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. And then we have Jesus, Revelation chapter 3. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. So we have the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, and Jesus himself telling us that God will protect us from his wrath that is to come upon the world in this hour of testing. He has protected his people in the past, and he will continue to protect us. Now, to me, that's encouraging. But that does not mean that we will be spared from persecution and suffering and trials and hard times and things of that nature. We are living in a fallen world. We're living in a world where, where, where sin is rampant. Things happen, death and disease and destruction and all of this stuff. And that's just a part of life that we have to deal with here on this earth until Jesus comes back. But it does mean that as believers, we never have to fear God's wrath. I heard it, I, I watched something earlier in the week, and I'll try to remember what it was like, but it was like this. So Jesus died on the cross for us, right? He, he went through 
more than we could ever imagine, allowed himself to be beaten and smacked and punched and whipped and nailed to that cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that the punishment would no longer be upon us, upon those who accept him into their lives. So why would God continue to punish us as his children if we accepted what his son did for us on the cross? Amen? We just, when we mess up, we just, God wants to help us through that. So I don't know if that helps anybody, but, but we as believers and followers of Jesus do not ever have to fear God's wrath. Maybe there are consequences to some things that we've done, but we don't have to fear God's wrath. So now it's also interesting to note that the church is no longer mentioned from Revelation chapter 6 until chapter 19. So we're going to look at chapter 4 today, and then sometime here coming up in the next few weeks, we'll look at chapter 5. This is, this is what's happening in the throne room of God. And then, and then the tribulation period will we'll kind of start, we'll look at that in chapter 6. But the church is no longer mentioned. Why is that? Because the church... The body of Christ is no longer on the earth. We've been caught up. We're in heaven. We're protected from what is to come during this seven-year tribulation period. Now, here's the thing. During that seven years, many people will get saved. Many people will put their faith in Jesus. They'll say to themselves, whoopsie. Whoops, my mom was right, my dad was right, my grandparents were right. I mean, everybody's gone. All my friends who went to church and I said no are gone. Maybe what they were telling me was right. And they'll put their faith in Jesus. And then also this seven-year period, uh, at some point, um, salvation will come to the Jewish people. Because right now, it is the time for the Gentiles. It's our time to put our faith into Jesus. And during that seven-year tribulation period, there will be a time, and we'll look at it, when salvation, redemption will be found amongst the Israelites, amongst Israel, God's chosen people. So people will get saved during this tribulation period, and many things will happen to people who put their faith in Jesus. But I wonder, I just wonder, will they be caught up? Will there be some kind of a rapture for them, like a mid-tribulation rapture or post-tribulation rapture or something of that nature? I'm not too sure, but it's possible. So, so that's kind of gives you... And then here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. Those people who get saved during the tribulation period, they're, they're not what we would refer to as part of the church, but they will receive a special homecoming in heaven. Because they put their faith in Jesus, and they probably be because they put their faith in Jesus during one of the most darkest times on the earth. So, so, and then chapter 19 in Revelation is a scene of all the redeemed, everybody praising and worshiping God. All of them. So, well, we got a little bit to get there. So, we'll look at all that stuff later on, but for now, we are in Revelation chapter 4. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really excited about this. I like looking at the letters, but this, this is nuts. So let's just get into it. Let's read verses 1 through 3. This is John writing this. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. 
And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly, I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on the throne. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. So I'm, 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 I'm reading from the New Living Translation. The door standing open was to the throne room of God. Now, I don't know. I was thinking about this, too, like this week. Like, like we don't know how much time has gone by from chapter 1 to now. Like, did John write a letter to the church, like, one after the other? Was it once a week, every day, once a month? We don't really know. But what we do know is that John said, the voice that I heard before, that's the voice of Jesus. He knows this voice. And John was given an invitation by Jesus himself to enter into the throne room of God. Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. What must happen? The tribulation period. But before, and pardon my language, all hell breaks loose on earth, I think Jesus wanted John to see, let me just show you what's really happening. Let me give you a glimpse behind the curtain. Instantly, John was in the spirit. And I'm not too sure exactly what type of experience John was having when he says, I was in the spirit. But I believe it was much more than just a vision or a dream or like a, 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 a trance kind of a state. I believe it was literal, like John was caught up into heaven. Like, like somehow John saw this door, uh, like it was, it was to the throne room of God, and Jesus said, come up here. It was a voice like a trumpet. And I don't know if John just, okay, and just... Like, somehow he was up there. So I don't know how that happened, but I do believe that it was literal. And I also believe this because in chapter 1, John says, I'm writing down everything that I have seen and heard. And I, and I take it as literal. And some of the stuff, too, like as we get into the, the, the scenes of the tribulation period and stuff, it, it, it's probably like, like, like maybe like God or the Spirit or there was an angel at some point that starts showing John stuff that just kind of opened up and John saw what was about to happen. But I believe this was a literal experience. And then he says, the one sitting on the throne. So he sees somebody, something sitting on a throne. But the best description he can give is as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, whatever that is. And the glow of an emerald circled the throne like a rainbow. Whatever he saw was so just like the best description he could give was indescribable. Right? Like, like it just colors and just all of this stuff just magnificent. Like I saw someone there, but this is what it looked like with my human eyes. This is God. He saw God. 
Nobody's ever seen God. Like Moses, Moses wanted to see God. When he was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, he says, I want to see your face. God says, nobody gets to see my face. But you can see me as I pass. You can see the back of me as I pass you. And he, and he did. And this is as close to any kind of human interaction with God himself is right here. And the best thing God can give us, or J John can give us, is a description of all of these colors and gems and things like that. It's truly indescribable with human eyes. And, and God, though, is often described as light. In, in numerous passages in the Psalms, he's described as light. But I'll give you one. In Psalm 104, you are dressed in a robe of light. And then the Old Testament prophet Daniel said this. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. And then 1 Timothy, this is uh, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. Now, now, the Apostle Paul was also at one point caught up into heaven. You read about this in one of the Corinthians. And he says, I was caught up in the third heaven. So, like, what is the third heaven? Well, the first heaven is like our atmosphere, where the, where the, where the birds fly. And the second is supposed to be like the cosmos, where outer space is. And then the third is where God resides. John's description, though, of God is as close as we are ever going to get. And it's as a brilliant description of, of gemstones and colors, light. Like, think of it like this. Like, so we talk about how the earth is, is the devil's kingdom right now, right? And the things that we see right now, the flowers that are blooming and all this, we, we, we say it's brilliant, it's, it's so pretty, it's beautiful. It is absolutely nothing compared to what heaven's going to look like. Everything here has been dulled with sin. There is no sin in heaven. So imagine, just John is just, he's blown away. And then he describes three groups of beings who were worshiping God at the throne room of heaven. So let's just read a couple more verses here. Verses 4 and 5. 24 thrones surrounded him and 24 elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. Anybody want to help me out with that one? So the 24 elders on the thrones surrounding God most likely represent the church, the redeemed. Now, we get this, or at least from Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus said, all who are victorious will be clothed in white. That, that's us, all right? So these elders are clothed in white. And then again, later on in chapter 3, I am coming soon, hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. We will receive a crown or crowns as rewards. Well, the 24 elders are wearing gold crowns. So the 24 elders dressed in white and wearing gold crowns 
I believe, represent God's redeemed, the church and the redeemed of Israel. There's 24 elders, there's 12 tribes of Israel, and there's 12 disciples of Jesus's. So I believe that's who this was. And then in front of them was the sevenfold spirit of God. There's these flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder and all of this stuff happening. And then the sevenfold spirit of God, that is the Holy Spirit. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about that. The sevenfold spirit of God, uh, when, when addressing the church in Sardis, we talked about the sevenfold spirit of God and how that is the Holy Spirit. And these are not seven literal spirits that John is looking at, but there's seven characteristics to the Holy Spirit that, that he operates in. And so that's why he's referred to as the sevenfold spirit of God. And also, the number seven in the Bible represents completion. So that's the Holy Spirit. So we've got God, we've got the 24 elders, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples of Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit is in front of them. It's all right there. And then, if that's not enough, let's read a little further. In front of the throne was a, sh a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Yeah. This is the throne room of God, church. Can we, can, we just, can we just take a minute to think about what we're reading here, to think about what this looks like? Like John was given the honor of entering into the throne room of God. Like, like you don't just walk in and out of the throne room of God. It was an invitation by Jesus himself. And I truly believe, because after this, the tribulation period, the scenes of that are going to start playing out. I believe that, that Jesus said, you know what, John, you're, you're, you're going to write down some really, really, wild stuff that's about to happen on earth, but I want you to see what you have to look forward to. I want you to see what your creator looks like, what all this looks like. To me, what we're reading is just mind-blowing. It's, 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 we, we, we can't even imagine it. This is the literal throne room of God that we are reading about, that, that Jesus, that God himself is saying, I want you to understand this. And, you know, I, I do a lot of research in the commentaries, like from the 18, you know, the, the, the old school commentaries. There's not a whole lot of this written by them. Because even they are like, oh, I wonder what, what does that mean? So our finite minds, our earthly minds cannot fully grasp what John is writing about here. And I, I have to imagine that 
neither can his. Hence, the shiny sea of glass that looked like crystal, sparkling crystal. What, what, is, what is he describing here? Like, we have lights and fog machines. We, we, try, to, we try to emulate heaven. <laughs> we try to create an atmosphere with our earthly human minds, right? We don't do all this stuff just for show. We, we do it to create an atmosphere of worship. But let's just focus for a second on the third group of beings here, or, or creatures, in your, the New King James says. So we have the 24 elders, all right? We've established that's the 12 tribes of Israel, and then it represents the 12 uh, uh, disciples, represents uh, 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 the Israelites and the Gentiles, okay? We have the sevenfold Spirit of God, which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does all the work. Right? lives within each one of us. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. And then we have these four living beings. Well, they're angels. Now, both the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel and Isaiah had encounters with similar-looking beings. Ezekiel chapter 1 has a very vivid description we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 10, though. They're very similar angels, but Ezekiel chapter 10 is a little more condensed. But, this, you know what? Let me, I'm just going to share something with you. So there was a night many, many, many years ago when I had an encounter with Jesus, okay? I said, Jesus, if you're real, right here in this book, if you're real, I want you to show yourself to me. And I had an encounter with Jesus like none other. Like the Holy Spirit just invaded my life. Crazy, okay? And then the next day, I just so happened to start reading the book of Ezekiel. Now read Ezekiel chapter 1. It's either going <laughs> to turn you away or like, what is what am I reading? And I was engulfed in it. And that is what God used to pull me in. I was just like, what in the world am I reading? I love this. And so that, that's what it was. I, I, I love the book of Ezekiel. But, but in chapter 10, just for the sake of, of, of the sermon here and time, I just want to read uh, verse 14. Each of the four cherubim had four faces. The first was the face of an ox. The second was a human face. The third was the face of a lion. And the fourth was... Fourth was the face of an eagle. Does that sound familiar? All right, so let's go down to verse 20. These were the same living beings I had seen beneath the God of Israel when I was by the Kabar River. This is chapter 1. He had seen these angels before. I knew they were cherubim, for each had four faces and four wings and what looked like human hands under their wings. And their faces were just like the faces of the beings I had seen at the Kabar. And they traveled straight ahead just as the others had. Now, there's some other crazy descriptions of what these angels looked like. But just for the sake of today's sermon, this kind of matches what John is seeing in heaven. Now, let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. Listen to this. It was in the year King Uzziah died 
that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were the seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? So, I know that as human beings, we like to get interested in certain things, particularly angels. I would caution you in reading books about angels that aren't centered around the Bible. Because there are other angels out there, right? And they serve a God with a lowercase g, the God of this world, Satan. So I have a book in my office written by Billy Graham on angels. And if you want to do a study on angels, I would recommend the book by Billy Graham because it is all biblical. Like, I remember when I was reading it, and I was like, this is kind of boring. He's just, he's just describing these angels like right out of the Bible, using Bible verses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's not going outside the Bible. So you can learn all about the angels of God from this book that Billy Graham wrote. I think it's titled Angels. But So let's just kind of look at this for a second. So Ezekiel refers to the angels he saw as cherubim. Isaiah refers to them as seraphim. Nowhere did we read about pudgy little babies with sashes and harps. <laughs> I don't know where those depictions come from. You'll never see a description of an angel like that in the Bible. They've got six wings, four wings, four faces, different animals, eyes all over them. The difference between the two, all right, is that the cherubim each had, they each had four faces and four wings. And Ezekiel saw them here on the earth. They came to him. In Ezekiel chapter 1, he's at this river, and these, these beings come flying up to him. So they delivered a message to him here on the earth. All right? Now the seraphim, they are the same angels that Isaiah and John saw. They're in the throne room of God. And in all three cases, so they had, the, they had six wings, eyes everywhere, and each of them had a, a different face. So there's some differences here. But in all three cases, each angel, in, in Ezekiel's, Isaiah's, and John's, they all carried out different tasks. So here's what we know about John's encounter, okay? The angels were surrounding the throne of God. And their primary function of the seraphim with the six wings is to serve and worship the Creator. All right? They had six wings and they are full of eyes. This indicates that they are fully aware of everything that is going on and they can carry out the will of God with quickness. And then as we see later, later in the next few chapters, in chapter 5, we'll see that these particular angels, these seraphim, 
play a role in God's wrath being poured out on the earth during the tribulation period. So they're in the throne room of God, serving and worshiping the Creator. Now, it's hard to say exactly what all these faces represent, okay? But it's possible that they represent all of God's creation and its greatness and strength and beauty, okay? So the lion represents nobility. The ox represents strength. The human represents intelligence. And the eagle represents swiftness. And they all had one of those faces. And then in Ezekiel's case, they had all four faces. And day after day and night after night, they fly around the throne room of God singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was, who is, and who is still to come. They're worshiping Jesus, the creator. And, and their voices are probably, that's probably where some of that thunder and that booming and, and all of that is. So let's read a little bit further. Verse 9. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist because you created what you please. Now remember, the elders represent the redeemed. That's us. And whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to God, the elders bow down and they worship him and they lay their crowns at his feet with praise. This, to me, is the greatest scene of anything created because it is the throne room of God and it's where we desire to be. It's what's ingrained in our hearts. That's why the devil is so adamant on pulling us away from that and steering us from that and getting us to, to go against each other because he does not want us to experience that. The response of the elders is most likely how we will respond when Jesus gives us our reward. And we're going to lay our crowns at his feet. By doing this, we are acknowledging that our rewards in this life are a result of God's grace on our lives. Nothing we do as Christians we are doing in our own strength, in our own ways. We are doing them because the grace of God is upon us. And he is moving through us. And we are listening to his voice. And we are following his lead. And we are pointing people to Jesus. And we will get rewards in heaven. And we will say, thank you. Thank you. 
I, I truly believe, church, that, that what we do here in this lifetime determines what we will be doing in heaven. I believe heaven is going to be way more than what we could ever think or imagine. But we will have things to do. Remember in some of those letters, Jesus said, you will sit with me on my throne, just like I sat with my father on his throne. There are things that we do here that will determine what we do there. In Daniel chapter 12, he said this, those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. When we lead somebody into the kingdom, this is the angel Michael. And there's some other angels that are, that are higher ups. There's Michael and there's Gabriel. Lucifer was up there, but he, he fell. Michael came to visit Daniel and said this. Those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. This is a, a message that Michael gave Daniel concerning the redeemed. 2 John chapter 1 says this. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent so that you receive your full reward. We can lose these rewards throughout our life, church. You know, as, as Christians, we are to be telling others about Jesus. We are to be living our lives in a way that point people to Jesus. How do people perceive you in the workplace? How do they perceive you at family gatherings? How do they perceive you when you're having a bad day and you're at the grocery store? Does your life point people to Jesus? Because it isn't easy to always be that person. John is saying, be careful not to lose the reward we've gained by our witness for Jesus. This is the same thing that Jesus told us in Revelation chapter 3. Live your life in such a way that you do not lose your crown. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, so do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Life can be tough. Life can smack us around. Life can be so unfair that we just, somebody needs to get a piece of what I'm feeling. But as believers in Jesus, we cannot act that way. We cannot gossip. We cannot backbite. We cannot defame another person's character. We cannot talk ill of our supervisors in the break room. We cannot do that, church. We are, we are tarnishing our witness for Jesus when we get caught up in that stuff. It's best just to zip it and look at the soda machine for a minute. Because sometimes the best witness doesn't use words. People will notice 
Oh, they, they, they never get caught up in that. You know, when the, when the, when the, when the, when the lunch bell rings again, they get back to work, <laughs> and they work hard. I want to be like that person. Our witness will bring others into the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Many things in this world can deceive us into turning away from our trust in Jesus. And we have to be careful about that. We are given a picture of the throne room of God, and we have an enemy that runs rampant on this earth, who it is his kingdom right now, who does not want us to experience that. And he's got all kinds of shiny objects on this earth to deceive us and to detract us and to keep us from living out the will of God on our lives. Remember the great reward your faith will bring. That's what the writer in Hebrews is telling us. And then, and then listen, here's something to hold on to. If, if, if you're in a bad chapter in life right now, Galatians chapter 6. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we do not give up. Persevere. Fight through it. Put that smile on. Be that witness. Hold on to Jesus as tight as you can. So in closing, you know, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God spoke through one of his prophets. This prophet was the, by the name of Hosea. Hosea had a rough go at it for God. You can read the story. <laughs> God was not happy with the religious leaders of the day. And he used Hosea to give this message. The religious leaders were not carrying out their role as religious leaders. And the message God had for them was this. My people are being destroyed because they do not know me. The people that I put into place as the leaders for me, God says, are not doing their job and so now the people don't know me, and they're being destroyed. They're, they're all these little shiny things on the earth. They're worshiping false gods. They're going after things that aren't of me. They're being destroyed, God says. And then in his prayer for the church in Ephesus, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you may grow in your knowledge of God. That's why we're doing a series on the book of Revelation, so that we can grow in this knowledge, so that we can understand the weird stuff in the Bible. Like, like this, is, this is wacky stuff, the book of Revelation it is. But the book of Revelation is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and it all points to Jesus. And when I read Revelation chapter 4, that's where I want to be when it's all said and done with. And this prayer of Paul's, right, it transcends generations. I pray for you constantly to, that, that Jesus, that God, gives you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you may grow in your knowledge of God. This prayer is for the church. This prayer is for us. And it is my prayer, too, for us, 
that we grow in the knowledge of God and in His Word. Because without it, we would not be among the redeemed. And this is why we come together on Sundays to learn about the Scriptures. Amen? Let's pray. God, I want to I just want to thank you for giving us that, that glimpse of where you reside in the throne room. And my prayer is that we have this sense of excitement of what it's going to be like in heaven that we could never experience here on earth. It's reserved for our eternal destination. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here today that, that is just struggling, I pray that you would give them the, 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 the drive to persevere. Something from what we just talked about today to, to, to be rooted in their hearts. That we strive for our eternal destination to be in heaven. That's the vertical part of the cross. But the horizontal part of the cross is that we become good witnesses for Jesus. That we point others to him. We don't need to change people. We just need to point them to Jesus. Let Jesus do the convicting. Let him do the changing.